What's up, San Francisco? My name is Danny, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a crystal meth addict. I just want to throw that in there because, hey. I've been sober since January 28th of 2011, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm actually from Dallas, Texas, Kim. Where's my Dallas people at? There's a whole row back there. There's a few over here. Um, there was only two of us last night, so I brought my I flew my gang in today, um, just so that they could keep me accountable because I tend to lie. Well, I t- I used to lie. I don't really lie anymore. I tell the truth now, like somebody yelled out. And um, I just want to um, go ahead and qualify a little bit. I have a home group in Dallas, Texas. It's the Lambert Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that is where I got sober, and that is where my life changed. I have a sponsor. His name is Mark R. Um, talked to him a few minutes before the meeting earlier, and he said, just get up there and be yourself. Tell him the truth, and just let whatever happens happen, right? Um, because I don't really have control of this anymore, right? I don't really have control of anything anymore. I've turned it all over. Um, so I first want to thank the committee um, for inviting me. Kim, thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me to come to this conference. It's an honor and a privilege to participate in our own sobriety, and um, I'm very grateful for that. And to the entire committee, um, thank you for, for putting on an amazing conference. It's been wonderful so far. I'm looking forward to the rest of the tonight and into tomorrow. Um, I hope you took a week off, <laughs> Kim, because I, I have chaired a roundup. And I had an emotional hangover for about a week when I was finished. So I hope you get some rest on Monday through Friday. Just take a little break, okay? Call me if you need anything. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you what it was like, what had happened, <laughs> and what it is like now. Um, Al-Anon speaker was amazing, Rob, but you stole a few of my little, uh, Rob, yeah, give it up, Rob. He's like, I got this fabulous brooch. I'm like, bitch, <laughs> you're supposed to be opening for me. I'm the Lady Gaga tonight. I got a brooch too, bitch. I love you, Rob. No. No, and then he's like, I met him before the meeting, and he's like, look at these shoes. I'm like, bitch, look at my shoes. He's like, those cheap things. <laughs> Anyways, all the love to you. And to our speakers last night, Melissa and Dawn, you guys were amazing. My my favorite color is kind of like, mine's sparkle and glitter, so we, we got a lot of light. So... um just to get started, I grew up in a small town in Illinois. Um, it's not as small as John's town where he grew up, but we learned that at dinner. It was about, you know, 30,000 people, and it was surrounded by farms, and it was very boring, and very redneck, very, you know, conservative. And um, I was born into a very delusional, alcoholic family, but... They're also very loving, if that makes any kind of sense. I love every single person in my family. But there's a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in my family. It goes so far back that, you know, when I got sober, I tried to research it. And I have a grandmother still alive. She's 88. And I was, I was trying to, I was asking her, like, how far back does this go? Because I was interested in that now. You know, I'm interested in that now. I could have given two craps 
before, but now I'm pretty interested in that because, you know, my grandfather, her husband died of alcoholism, um, crashed a car right into the front um, end of a, a mobile home trailer and went into a coma and never made it out. And I was like seven or eight when that happened. And then my mother buried her mother of cirrhosis of the liver to alcoholism. Um, she died 10 days before I was born. And my mother was 16 when she had me. You know, she really never really had a childhood. She was very young herself. She brings me into the world and instantly has to become an adult. Um, my father did marry her when they found out she was pregnant. And so they got married very young. And I, you know, I really, looking back on it, I think they had to learn the process all along. They really didn't know any different. They really didn't know how to be parents. And, you know, I, I, and they did the best that they could. They're amazing people. They're still married today, 47 years. I don't know how that happened. Um, cause my dad was an alcoholic growing, when I was growing up. And, um, he was the type of alcoholic that my sister and I would wait up late at night for him to come home because he was always very happy. And we would get whatever we want at two in the morning. And we're like, pizza, money, Chuck E. Cheese. And so we would have him write these things down because he would be in a blackout. And we wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And so I remember, you know, my mom kind of tells me that she's like, well, you got to go to Chuck E. Cheese, but your dad passed out in the car in the parking lot when we got there. And so, you know, riddled with alcoholism. And um, I always remember, you know, the parties that they had all night at the house and the music would be playing loud. And, and I always said to myself, I'm not going to grow up and be like that. You know, I don't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to. I want to be, I want to have a good life, and I don't really want to live like that. But I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, you know, from a very early age, I knew I was different. Um, I knew I wasn't like anybody else. And being in a very small town, it was super obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so along with that came all the bullying and teasing that a lot of us, you know, probably went through. And it was pretty intense. Um, so growing up, I lived in a lot of fear. You know, I had a lot of fear. I didn't like going to school because, you know, every single minute through school, it's faggot this and sissy that. And, and now I have a T-shirt on it, but I was always picked last in gym. Um, you know, I never really fit in. And so the only thing that I really knew to do was to overachieve, Right. So I got good grades, and um, I was a gymnast growing up. I started gymnastics at three years old. I did a somersault in the living room, and my mom's like, yes, he's going to be a gymnast. And so she, <laughs> Nadia Komanichi, right here out of Galesburg. <laughs> and so, <laughs> the facts are the facts, guys. <laughs> um and so it's hot as hell in this um, conference room, so I had to bring me a little fan. And I thought this was appropriate because every, you know, throughout my share, I'm going to just say, I have a lot of receipts, so facts are facts. So my mom enrolled me in gymnastics, and, um, you know, I, that was where I really fell in love with this sport. It was also a very safe place for me to be, right? So as soon as I got out of school, I would go to the gym, and I would stay in the gym until like 9 o'clock at night. 
And I became a very successful power tumbler. I know power and tumbler. I know what you're thinking. Later in life, it became something else, but I was a power tumbler. And I... Um, no, so I... I competed in power tumbling and I went on to be a national champion of this event and um yeah and so I all I knew to do was really to overachieve and succeed at whatever I was doing and I was very comfortable in that atmosphere and in that environment and I was with my people right and so um you know I like I said I lived a very I, I was pretty terrified growing up I'd never fit in, and then fast forward to, you know, my freshman year in high school, and, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find my group of people. I'm trying to figure out where I fit, but I, I don't really know where that's at. And I got invited to go out in the country and drink with some, some groups of friends in, well, they weren't really friends yet, but I wanted to be a part of that. So I went along with them. And that's where my drinking career started because that's what they were doing. They were going out in the country, they were building bonfires, and they were drinking Boone's Farm. Or, yeah, woo, or Zima, which is kind of making a comeback now. I don't understand why because it was disgusting. But, um, and so on the weekends, we would go out in the country and we would drink Boone's Farm and Zima, and, you know, that's when I started drinking. I don't, I was talking about this at dinner, I don't really remember my first drink. Um, I, I listen to a lot of speaker tapes, and I always hear the alcoholic saying, I remember that first drink. I remember it taking over my body. I remember how it felt. I don't really, ha- I don't remember that. But I do remember that what it did for me is it allowed me to fit in with other people. What it also did, and I didn't know this at the time, is it triggered the alcoholism inside of me that I believe was genetic. I do, you know, I mean, everybody has their story. I believe that a lot of us are probably, you know, genetically alcoholic. And that is what happened when I took that first drink. It took a, a long time to progress. You know, it took, you know, six or seven years to really progress into full-fledged alcoholism. But slowly that happened. And so every weekend I was out in the country drinking and, and, you know, consequences started happening because people would get busted and they're all hauled off to jail. And I don't know how, but I do believe now that it was my higher power. I never ended up getting in trouble. Um, I, for some reason, was always like running to the store to get more liquor, come back, everybody's in jail. You know, (laughs) I got really lucky. And like, I would leave, disappear, you know, or they're all hiding out in the cornfield because the cops showed up, you know, and I'm like, I'm out. Um, so like in this town, there's not really a whole lot to do. I graduated high school, um, and I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go in life. And my parents were like, we're not going to invest in a lot of, of, you know, college for you because you really don't know exactly what you want to do. So they thought it was a good idea that I stay in my hometown and go to a community college, which was ex- not, it's nothing what I wanted. I wanted to go away to a university. I did not want to go to a community college. I wanted to go where everybody else was going. And so I was very resentful. And this is when I started to build up my first resentments. And um, instead of going to classes, I would stay out all night drinking. And now I'm doing other stuff. 
and I would sleep in my car all day instead of going to classes. So what happens? I fail out of college. My father came home one day, and he worked in a factory, and he said, you know, they're hiring at Gates Rubber Company where he worked. Um, they were doing a massive hiring spree, and they're like, why don't you just come and work at the factory, and you'll make good money. It was good money for my hometown, and, you know, you don't really have to go to school anymore. And so I interviewed, and I got the job, and it was horrible. Um, so here I am in this factory. I'm back kind of in an environment that I was in in junior high where I'm driving around a forklift. And now I didn't add any to anything to this, but I wore these really tight Wrangler jeans because now I'm really gay, okay? <laughs> and I'm driving a forklift and they're yelling faggot and faggot and I'm driving by and I'm like F you and it was, it was a hot mess. And so, my last job there was a hose cutter for Komatsu, and um, I had a, a saw, and I'm changing the blade, and I'm working 12-hour shifts all through the night, and so in order for me to stay awake, I'm doing a lot of drugs, and what happened is I would go to the bathroom to, you know, do some more drugs, and then I come. I was changing the saw blade on on this saw, and I left a wrench on it. Somebody from another department come over to use it, and when they turned it on, it busted their arm. And I come back, and it's complete chaos. And the supervisor says, "Well, all of you have to go and take a drug test." And now I just did a eight ball of cocaine in the bathroom, pretty much. So I'm like. Okay. Um, so I go. I mean, I have no other choice, right? I have to go take this drug test because if I don't, then it's, you know, I'm refusing to take this drug test. And so, like, I'm in panic mode. And I go take a, I take the test and I go home to my parents the next day and I explain to them what had happened. This is the what had happened part. And because my dad's going to find out and he's now one of the mechanical engineers at this company. And so I'm, I'm, explaining to him, like, I'm going to fail this drug test. I don't know what day it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And um, I just want you to know that I'm going to get fired. And he's like, you know, and my parents, I think because of the alcoholism and the addiction that we talked about earlier, I think they kind of understood it. And so they're like, you know what, we'll deal with it when it happens. Okay. And so three days later, I show up to work, and um, the executives are there, and they're waiting for me at the door, and they're like, you failed this drug test ten times over the limit that we allowed for you to. <laughs> facts are facts. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So they're like, you're fired. And the union, I'm, I'm amazed, right? I'm like, how did this happen? So the union was like, we're going to. We're going to fight for you to get your job back. And I'm like, how are you going to get my job back? Like, I just failed a drug test ten times over the limit. They're like, well, we're going to fight for you to get your job back, so don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so now I'm back at square one. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I'm now about 21. And, um, you know, for about a year I waited tables. But then this ad in the newspaper pops up. And from a little kid on, like, the first time I ever went on vacation – and I was on an airplane, and that gay stewardess comes walking down the aisle. I said, I want to do that. I want to get out of this town that I'm in. I want to become a flight attendant, and I want to travel the world, because that's where I belong. Those are my people. And so this ad in the newspaper is like, become a flight attendant. It was a full-page ad, and this was in the early 90s, or, you know, mid-90s. 
And so they were having a cattle call. And so I show up at this cattle call and um, still all these feelings because now I'm in a room with a hundred people. It was kind of like a room like this. It was at a hotel. There was a hundred people in there um, applying for this job. And I'm sitting next to people that are just drop dead gorgeous. They're in these beautiful suits. And, you know, my head starts spinning. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to get this, you know, and went through the process and they picked seven of us to fly to Dallas to interview for the position um, of flight attendant. So I somehow got picked. I don't know if it was my beautiful personality or what, but um, I went to Dallas, interviewed for the job of flight attendant, and um, I got hired by, I don't know, it was higher power or whatever, but I got hired and off I am to training. So now I'm becoming a flight attendant and um, I'm leaving everything behind. This is my opportunity to really start over this is my opportunity to get out of my hometown. This is my big moment, and I'm going for it. So I go to training and become a flight attendant, and I got based back in Chicago, so I'm at least close to home. And um, now what I didn't realize is that Alex in that play last night is exactly what the flight attendants, I don't know if you're in the room, Alex, but Alex is exactly what the flight attendants are like. Um, they're raging alcoholics <laughs> and have access to those little liquor mini bottles that you were talking about in the play <laughs> and hundreds of them. So um, I start this career and I fit in with these people. They drink like and do drugs and it's just, it's a wild, wild life. It's crazy and we're traveling the world and everywhere we go, we have liquor minis and everything we do has to do with alcohol. And so I'm right back in that spot of my alcoholism, and, and it just progresses, right? And, I mean, like like Don said, you know, I can sit here and tell you war story after war story, but um, my alcoholism, you know, picked up pretty fast. And next thing you know, I'm doing cocaine, and I'm drinking on the plane, and, you know, I'm drinking to get rid of the shakes because I can't pour wine in first class. You know, everywhere I went... I had those liquor mini bottles. Um, I'd drive through McDonald's and get a large Coke and Bacardi. You know, I'd go to the movie theater, liquor minis. I'm, you know, shopping at the mall. I mean, everywhere I went. I'm drinking all day long, every day. And, you know, the good thing about being a flight attendant is your consequences don't build up quite as fast because we're traveling all over the world. And um, it was kind of funny because we went out last night and um, we were passing this bar and I said, you know, I vaguely remember being in that bar years ago on a layover and I'm pretty sure it wasn't pretty. Um, and so, you know, there's so many times where I'm locked in the, the lavatory coming back from Spain and I'm in there for four hours just throwing up and heaving and, and the flight attendants are worried about me, like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I think I have the flu. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, it must have been the food in Spain. <laughs> um, but it was full-fledged alcoholism. And then um, shortly um, after that, um, I found crystal meth. And, you know, a huge part of my story is about my alcoholism. But what I'm going to tell you is kind of what I said earlier about the alcohol. Everybody, you know, a lot of alcoholics remember that first drink. I remember the very first time I ever put crystal meth into my body. And I can 
close my eyes. I can picture the bathroom in the bar in Chicago. I remember my friend giving it to me, and he said, this is going to hurt. And I, <laughs> well, I, I always thought we were doing cocaine, right? I didn't realize what we were doing. And when I, in, when I sniffed that, that crystal meth, it felt like somebody punched me in the nose. And I went down, and I was like, oh, shit, like, what, what is this? And I came back up. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, and I remember I had arrived. Like, this is it. This, where did you get this? What is it? And where can we get more? And um, I also remember thinking, this is what's going to kill me. This is what's going to take me down. This is what's going to end it. You would think, for a normal person, that would be the last time they ever did it. <laughs> well, I'm not normal. <laughs> so um, my addiction took off from there. And it was alcohol or meth. And it was alcohol or meth. If I wasn't working, it was meth. If I was working, it was alcohol. And it was one thing or the other. You know, um, because I was pretty smart, as most alcoholics and drug addicts are. We're very smart people. Very intelligent people. And I always, I kind of knew how to manage that. That, you know, if I was going to work, I'd stop doing the drugs. Because there's three days before you take the test. And it was very mathematical. <laughs> I had a, I had a spreadsheet. And I'm like, okay, three days. Okay, I can drink. Okay, drink on the trip. As soon as I get home, I'm going to do meth. And it was that back and forth vicious cycle. And it just kept on happening. It kept on happening. And um, eventually, I stopped going to work. Um, Eventually, I stopped paying my mortgage. Eventually, I stopped talking to my family. And then I pushed all my friends away. And now I'm living in Dallas, Texas, and I have a partner, and we are just on a full-fledged rage. Like, it is just chaos. And, and basically, I was a prisoner in my own home because I didn't want to get in trouble, right? So I would stay in my, my townhouse for weeks on meth, or I would go to this little country club, <laughs> the Dallas, um, Dallas well, Club Dallas, that's it. I, see, it's been so long I forgot. Club Dallas, which was a high-end men's club. <laughs> it was a bathhouse. And, um, <laughs> and I would either be there or I would be in my townhouse, one or the other, with brief stops at my dealer's house. And... Um, and, you know, that was funny because, like, I'm going to tell you one story. We talked about this last night, and this is the kind of, of chaos and the things that I would do on these drugs or under the influence. You know, I thought it was a good idea one night in my, in my friend's, well, my dealer's house, whatever you want to call it. Uh, um, I was in the bathroom, and I'm so out of my mind. And I'm an entertainer, right? I'm a drag queen. I do a lot of drag. I do a lot of entertaining. I love being on a stage. I love a mic. I love, I'm very creative, in that aspect. So I'm in the bathroom and I'm thinking, I'm gonna put on a show. I'm gonna twirl a fire stick. <laughs> this is good, girl. So I grab the, the shower rod and I clean that off. And I take toilet paper rolls, full toilet paper rolls, one on each end. I douse them with lighter fluid and I light them on fire. And I come out of that bathroom and I'm like, whoosh, whoosh, and they loved it. I was a hit, but I almost built down an apartment building in Dallas, Texas. 
and I was very lucky I didn't, but it was very entertaining. And those are the kind of things that I would do. I know, it, it's very entertaining. I had a video of it at one time. I don't know where it's at now, but... Um, Luckily, a lot of the things that I did came before cell phones and, you know, all of that good stuff. But I do have a video of it. And, I mean, I'm lucky I didn't burn down. I could have went to jail for arson. Like, those are the types of things I did. I, you know, almost or, you know, I could have really burnt down this this um, condo building. And so those are the things that I would end up doing. And, um, you know, things went down pretty quick. My employer... Um, I was on a four-month miss trip. We, you know, usually if somebody misses, it's miss a trip. I didn't show up to work for four months. My family couldn't find me. They had the cops sitting out in front of my house waiting till I come out because I wouldn't let them in. Um, you know, I'm freaking them out. Um, my employer's like, we've had enough. You're not showing up to work. So they call me in, and uh, my supervisor, I was a really good flight attendant, and I, and I am today because of the program, but... Um, she calls me in her office and I have to take a union rep and, and she sits me down and she's like, I'm 110 pounds. Um, I'm basically a walking skeleton. She sits me down and she's like, Danny, you're not coming to work. I don't know what's wrong with you. You were one of my best flight attendants and, um, I'm going to have to fire you. Now this is my dream job and I'm, I'm looking at losing everything right now. And so she sits me down and she's like, this is it. I don't know what's, I don't know what to do. And, um, I was basically saying, you know what? It's my own fault. You're going to have to do, if you have to fire me, so be it. And, um, the union rep's like, she doesn't think you really care. So I'm going to need you to put on an Academy Award moment, um, in the office. So I'm in the office bawling. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to lose my job. And so, she comes, they, after they negotiate or whatever, she comes back and she said, I'm going to give you one opportunity to fix whatever's wrong with you. Now, like I mentioned, I wasn't paying my mortgage, so I'm six months in foreclosure. Um, she's offering me one opportunity to fix it. Um, I had already kind of been to rehab when I got fired from the, the, the factory. And um, this is what, this is when I really start to have that everything's unmanageable, I'm powerless. You know, but I'm still kind of not sure, right? And so she said, I'm going to give you one chance to fix it. If you call in sick again, that's it. So I go home, I get high, and I call in sick. Because that's what, that's what we do. I didn't have any kind of defense against that, that, that drug or alcohol. I mean, that's what we do. I needed it to survive. I could not get out of bed without rolling over and taking a drink or hitting a pipe. I, I just, I couldn't. I was weak. I, I, there was no other option for me. And what happened, what had happened, is I, I look in the mirror. I don't even recognize myself, but I have a moment of clarity, right? This is where that first moment of clarity comes in. I look in the mirror. I'm out of drugs. I'm out of alcohol. I'm out of solutions, and what I, what was playing in my head is this tape of one of my best friends who had gotten sober a little bit before me. When you're ready, if you want to get sober, call me. And so I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, I'm out, I'm, I'm done. The gig is up. And so he said, you know, here's the number for the employee assistance program. You need to call them. 
So I call the Employee Assistance Program, I go to the, the EAP, and I sit in front of this representative for them, and I'm still lying to him. I'm saying it's just alcohol, and he's like, you can't sit still. Like, you're not sitting in the chair. I'm fidgeting with everything. I'm like, you know, playing games. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he's like, you can't sit still in the chair. This has got to be more than alcoholism. What is it? Be honest. And I sat down next, and he finally pulled it out of me. I said, because I had told him I was recreationally drinking and using. I wanted, I still wanted to look good. I, and I told him, I said, all I need you to do is call my supervisor, tell her I came in, I stopped by, I said hi, and then I'll, I'll clear the sick list. He's like, that's not how this is going to work. They're a little smarter than we are, actually. <laughs> that's their trained profession. And so... I was honest with him, and I told him, I said, I have an addiction to, to crystal meth, and I don't know how to stop, and I don't know what that looks like. And he said, well, you're going to go to rehab. And I said, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's like, well, you really don't have a choice. And so we did that for a minute. And... Um, <laughs> and so I, I surrendered. That was the first time that I ever really surrendered. It was the first time that I ever really admitted that I had a problem, and off I went to rehab. And so I checked into Starlight Treatment Center in Kerrville, Texas. It's a beautiful ranch-style, resort-style rehab. It was fabulous. Um, and half the treatment center were flight attendants. I was like, yes, queen. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, like I said earlier, our flight attendants truly are, um, we party like rock stars. And so I spent 30 days in treatment, and um, I, I really started to sober up and hear the solution. Now, I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous in 2008. I went to three meetings, and like somebody mentioned at the podium before, I heard all the differences. You know, everybody had had DUIs. You know, everybody had been to jail. Everybody, I was like, I might have overreacted. Um, I don't really think I'm an alcoholic. So I drank until and used until 2011. Um, so this was really the first time that I really listened. And in rehab, they make you go through at least the first four steps before they'll let you go home. And so I'm an overachiever. I was like, one, two, three, four. Um, I'm going to do a fifth step. And... Um, you know, I, I, I was telling them, I'm really going to do this stuff when I get home and I get a sponsor, but I really don't know, you know, what that looks like in here. And so, an hour and ten minutes. I'm just kidding, girl. <laughs> I tried to negotiate an hour and a half earlier. It didn't work. But, um, no, so I get out of treatment, and everything in treatment is kind of what you had touched on before is, when you get out, go directly to a meeting, get a sponsor, work the steps, and work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous if you want to stay sober. If you want to change your life, those are the things that you have to do. We, we lightly say these are suggestions. No, these are things that you have to do. You can call it whatever the fuck you want, but <laughs> suggestions sounds really sweet, but I'm the kind of addict that you need to tell me this is what you have to do to stay sober. And I did it. I did it. And I, you know, 
went to an 11 o'clock meeting at Lambda. I was crawling the walls. I said, I just got out of treatment. I need a sponsor. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. And I was, you know, overachiever, so I'm logging everything. I think I did 180 meetings in 90 days. Um, yeah, but I was doing, like, when I was home and I wasn't flying, I was going to meetings all day long, you know, and started going through the steps. That first year, I was a mess. And I'm sure that row in the back there can attest. Yeah, Padre. Um <laughs> I was a hot mess. Oh, she's in the back too. So, um, but I was also on a pink cloud. I was excited again. I was ready to live a life beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, I started to change. Things started to happen. I went through the steps and I'm going to talk briefly about the steps because I really want to tell you about what's happening in my life now. But, you know, I went through the steps. My first sponsor relapsed. I got a new sponsor because I really think you need, you have to have a backup plan. I mean, if something happens, shit falls apart, you need a backup plan because it's my sobriety. It's a very selfish program. I want to stay sober. I'm going to have a backup plan. So I had another person already in mind, asked him to be my sponsor. We started going through the steps. A month later, he moves. So I had a backup plan. So then I got a new sponsor who took me through the steps, and that is really when my life started to change. Um, one, two, and three are really... You know, I do them on a daily basis. Um, I already knew I was powerless. I wrote out my consequences. My life was clearly unmanageable. I had no issue with the God thing. So, you know, turning it over and, and making a promise to, you know, stick to the program, that was pretty easy for me. Step four was a little confusing because I, I really am not a resentful person, but my sponsor was very um, easy on me. He's like, you know, here are the things that you did to other people. I lived far away from my family, so I didn't think I did anything to them. But they're like, you kept them up all night. Like, you robbed them of their serenity. You 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 took a lot from them. Got through my fourth and fifth step. He had already had a list of my, my character defects for my fifth step. <laughs> Ego, pride, all that good stuff was at the top of the list. He's like, you know what, you need to finish this. But also do your write an asset list. Because we don't want to be too hard on ourselves. We're very good people. When we get sober, a lot of our character defects go away. You know, I still have a big ego. I'm still very sarcastic. But I'm aware of those things so that I don't hurt other people. Um, eight, he had already had my eight list made out, too. If you have a really good sponsor, they're going to start writing some of this stuff out for you in your fifth step. And so he taught me how to make those amends, and I went out and started making my amends. And my family really just, they're like, we just want you to stay sober because we like this Danny. We didn't like that, Danny. So just stay sober and keep doing what you're doing. And then 10 is really a continuation of the steps. Every day I, I do a 10th step, and I do it throughout the day. I know when something's not right. My gut tells me, my heart tells me, and I fix it. And then 11 is all about connecting with God. And then the 12th step is my favorite step. You know, having had work all these steps, now practicing these principles in all of my affairs. Now I go out and I, I treat the world better than I used to, and I help others. And that's, um, my sobriety is really centered around service work. Service work has really kept me sober. Like I mentioned earlier, I chaired the Big D Roundup in 2017. So the first six years, I really couldn't go anywhere because they had me trapped. Um, chairing a roundup or I was on every single committee. I, you know, I'm a yes person. If you ask me to do something, I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to say is yes. 
and then I'm going to freak out about it because I really don't want to do it. But now I got to follow through because I'm sober and that's the right thing to do. Right. So that kept me sober for like six years. Um, I'm very active with my employer. I work for a major U.S. carrier that is very active in the, you know, everything's about gay, about pride now and about um, celebrating the LGBTQ LMNOP community. <laughs> and um, and um, so I'm on the committee that, that really puts together all of that. And I didn't mean that in any disrespect because I have friends all across the board with that. But um, I'm very active in that because I believe um, that we need a voice. I believe that we need people out there that are activists that really get out in the world and show the world that we can be exactly who we are and that's okay. And so I've done some really cool things this year. I've had a really busy year. Um, I did a lot of stuff with the pride stuff for, for my airline. I work for American Airlines. It's really no secret. And um, I got to work the very first ever pride flight in drag it was all over the news in June going to New York for World Pride. <laughs> and I say that because I never in my wildest dreams ever thought I would be on an airplane in full drag and all over the news. I just never thought that would happen. And it was so cool because I can only do that if I stay sober. Um, and then I got to help organize everything that we did at, in New York City for World Pride and, and MC the Pride float for, or, um, the float for American Airlines and the World Pride Parade. And, and it was so amazing. Um, in 2015, I competed in Atlanta. How many went to Worlds International in Atlanta? Um, how many's going to Detroit? <laughs> Detroit is next year, July 2nd through the 5th. And, um, I won Miss Sober Worlds in Atlanta. And so, remember I talked about my ego? That was a five-year title, sis. Uh, and so, in Detroit, I'll be passing that crown on to another queen that raises the most money for our um, LGBTQ stuff in, in Detroit. And so, I raised a ton of money for them and was able to help host the hospitality room and and the dance was super amazing so if you if you want some more information on that i can give that to you later um but something really cool that i'm doing right now and and again i'm i'm i love talking about myself so when they invited me to do this i'm like i get to talk about myself for 40 minutes um but so over the summer i did Dallas Pride, St. Croix in the U U.S. Virgin Islands. I did a huge event in Philly, and um, I've been working with a TV production company, and I've signed contracts to star in a reality show. And I can't really talk about it, <laughs> but uh, we filmed all summer, and hopefully, they're shopping networks right now, hopefully um, we'll get picked up soon, and um, my dreams will come true. And I say that because Alcoholics Anonymous is really about our dreams coming true. And um, Rebecca, one day, I don't know if you're still in the room, but we all, she's back there waving, we all um, 
we all had our first day in this room or in the room at our home group. And um, you can stay sober. I got sober and stayed sober. And all of my dreams became true. And there's still, I mean, there, there's so much more out there that I don't know what that looks like. But I know if I stay sober one day at a time, I can do anything. Anything. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in all of you. I've seen people go back to school and get degrees and become doctors and lawyers. And I've seen people, you know, become stars and become famous. And I've seen people, you know, reconnect with their families and get their life back on that level. I've seen people get married. I've seen people get divorced and stay sober. Um, I always hate this, but I brought my tissue. Because I knew it would happen. You know, this program is fucking amazing. And I'm sorry I'm cussing, but it really is. And I thought y'all were crazy as hell when I got sober. I mean, I really did. And, and I thought it was a cult and I thought it was all these, these things that it's really not. You know, it's, it's, Alcoholics Anonymous is amazing. It has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. It has given me a fellowship of friends that I can trust and that I can call at any time and in, in, with anything, and they show up. I mean, they'll show up at your door in the middle of the night if your kitchen's on fire with fire extinguishers and a big book. They really will. I mean, I had a, my car broke down. I called an alcoholic and it, I called a lesbian alcoholic. <laughs> Starkey, you know, all those in Dallas. And I learned how to call who I need to call when I need them for if you know what I mean, right? Um, you know, one of my friends is here with me this weekend, Jeremy. And um, when he got sober in a meeting, I was like, I know you. Welcome back is kind of what I first said. And he's like, no, girl. We met at the bathhouse. <laughs> and then we didn't have sex. But he's like, and then you you came to my house, and we got messed up, and we partied. And then he left, and I stayed in his house. And, um, <laughs> and now he's four and a half years sober. And this program reconnects people. And it gives us, it gives us that, that relationship and that fellowship. And that's what I'm going to close with because I truly believe in this book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've read it so many times. I'm actually working with my sponsor again right now. We're reading it. But this is my favorite passage in this book. Life will take on new meaning. Oh, I'm going to need my Kleenex girl. <laughs> to watch people recover. To see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship, a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Thank you, San Francisco. Thank you, Living Sober. I love each and every one of you.